Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. I've got a relatively short reading this morning, just verses 1 through 7 in Acts chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Chuck said it was a a short reading. That means I get more time to speak, right? (laughs) Anyways. um, So we've been going over studying an exegetical study of the book of Acts. Um, And it gives me a moment on a short passage just to, to kind of bring something out. So the term exegetical, we haven't talked about it a whole lot yet. But the idea of exegesis, okay, comes from two Greek words, ek meaning out of, out from, then Jesus being from gnosko and genesis, meaning knowledge. And so the idea is that you're taking knowledge out of the word, as opposed to a lot of times what we see, and, and we've talked about recently, um, eisegesis, and that is um, from the Greek word eis, ace, meaning into, so putting knowledge into. So a lot of times when we read God's word, we read into it what we already believe. And a lot of theologies are built upon eisegetical interpretations. We want to be exegetical. We want to be able to derive from the word truth that applies to our life and then hopefully apply it to our life and live it out. Okay, So that's kind of the goal here. So we've been going through this exegetical study of the book of Acts. And as we've gone through this exegetical on the book of Acts, we've seen how God has done a mighty work um, in this early church. And that they, they began, this church began with 120 people in an upper room praying. Jesus had um, uh, ascended, and he had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were going to be witnesses. And so in that upper room, there were 120 people who were gathering, not just the 11 uh, who were remaining. Remember, Judas Iscariot winds up, he kills himself. And so that while they were there in that upper room, they chose Mattathias to be the new 12th, right? But there were others. And so the woman joined with them in prayer, praying as well, and they were having this time of prayer. And so then the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost. They begin to speak with other languages. Um, there are many people, um, the Jews from all around the world and proselytes who were coming together into Jerusalem for the feast. And as they hear the message being proclaimed by Peter and the other apostles um, about Christ, many of them get saved. How many? 
Say again. Nope, 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 not there. How many in Acts 2? 3,000. 3,000 souls were saved, okay? So 3,000 souls were saved at Pentecost, okay? And so then church begins, okay? And they're, and they're operating in unity, and they're, they're going forth with power. And then we see how then God reveals to us um, one of the first of the wonders and miracles that he worked through Peter and John with the lame man. And then we're told then at the end of the lame man, okay, that more people got saved, that there were greater than, more than 5,000, because we're told there were 5,000 men, okay? And so that's not including the women and children. So I got the greater than sign, 5,000, 6,000, 7,500, 10,000? I don't know, okay? But all I know is within weeks, within weeks, let that sink in for a moment. Within weeks, the church went from 120 to over 5,000. That's some pretty phenomenal growth. As I was growing, I had the privilege of, of suffering from Osgood slaughter disease. Anybody know what Osgood slaughter is? You do. Good. Steve, what is it? Come on, doctor. And so basically I was told that my bones were growing too fast for my body. My bones were growing too fast for my body. And so therefore it caused the problem with my, my ligaments. My brother had to be casted for a period of time. I was just told I wasn't allowed to play sports. I could either be casted or I could just be inactive. I told you, I'm lazy. You guys don't believe this. But I was told you have, have being cast or being active. I said, inactive sounds good. I like that. <laughs> so growth many times brings growing pains. That's exactly right. And in life, it's the same way. That as the church grows... Whether you like it or not, I, I do this as marital counseling. I'm just going to apply it to here, right? The fact is that you and I have all one thing in common. Don't say Jesus for a moment, okay? Even apart from Jesus, you have something in common with the people who aren't here. What is it? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. And even if you are a good sinner, not meaning like you sin really good, but like, like you're... like. Morally righteous kind of a sinner. And so, therefore, you're not really wicked like those people over there. You know that you're good. Let's say you're 80% good. Don't tell me you're 90%, okay? Then you're a liar, too. That makes you down to 70. So, so let's say you're 80% good. And you get married to another good sinner. And she's 80% as well. So I'm picking on the man, right? So, and she's 80% good, too. Does anybody know? I love, again, math. God made math, right? Math is in everything. So statistics, probabilities. I love this kind of stuff, right? So you take an 80% sinner, mix them with an 80% sinner. What do you got? 64%. Only 64% goodness. Because the 80% and the 80%, 8 times 8 is 64. And now you're going to add what? kids and they ain't even 80 percent right anyways <laughs> well you know you're getting there baby you're getting there give yourself your butt yeah, anyway, no, you're okay. <laughs> so but you add all that together right and you start having you're wondering why you got issues in your home you got a bunch of sinners hanging out together in close proximity you're all selfish whether you like it or not 
Okay? You're self-centered. You care about what you care about, and you think you're right. And so when you've got a bunch of people who think they're right hanging out together, what tends to happen? Conflict. Conflict. So what do you think happens when you have a bunch of sinners joining together in, a, in an assembly? And you're not even stuck together by blood. Do you get where I'm going on this one? I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm married and I'm stuck with Marcia. Okay? And I don't feel that way. But you get what I'm saying. I mean, you could, you could say that. I'm, I'm going to make the best of it. But I ain't married to you. I am. But I'm not. And that's the struggle that we have. And so when it comes into the church, all of a sudden as we grow... And other people come in who aren't like me, who don't think like me. They think wrong. I don't understand why they think that way, but it's just whatever. And I, oh, okay, yeah, I know God puts together those in the body who he wants. I don't know why he did that. He really didn't consult me. And, 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 and we kind of chuckle about that stuff, but we start to think that way, right? The early church didn't have a, buy, a pass on this. The early church, I mean, I don't know about you, but we tend to, to elevate the early church. A bunch of holy people who were chosen by God, and all of a sudden they became 99% good. Make sense? And, but they didn't. You had a bunch of people who were getting saved, who had backgrounds, who had lifestyles, who were coming into this assembly, and they brought it with them. All the baggage of their past came with them. And we're going to see it. Seven verses. It's an exciting seven verses for me. I could preach multiple messages on just these seven verses. No, I promise I won't do them all today. Um, I'll leave you wanting, maybe. Okay, so, but we start off with, then, the need that's here. Oh, I forgot to tell you, go here, because this is important. Because James, think about it, writes about this later on, begins his epistle with this. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into what? Various trials. Now, many of you have been here for a while. Someone should be able to tell me what the word trial is in Greek. Anybody remember it? Good, Justin. Periosmos. Yeah. And so it's in plural, so it's periosmoi, right? But periosmos, a periosmos is a troubling situation. In fact, later on in verse 12 in James chapter 1, blessed is the man who endureth temptations, right? Well, it's the same word. It's periosmos. It's just a troubling situation. I'm riding down the road. Well, you're riding down the road. Let's put, put it on you. You're riding down, down the road, okay? And, and you got a red light. And so you stopped at the red light, the light turns green, you decide to go through it because it's green. I'm coming the other way. My light turned, but I decided to what? Go through it. And bam! And I hit your car. Do you know what just happened? A periosmos came into your life. <laughs> That's exactly right. You have a moment to celebrate, to count it all joy. How many of you would count it all joy at that moment? Okay, you get what I'm saying? But at that moment, how you respond to this periosmos, how you respond to this troubling situation is going to reveal whether it's an act of you have faith, you're trusting in God, or whether it's a temptation and you have sin in you that's being exposed. Okay, so you flip the coin, it's heads or tails, it all depends on how you respond to it. Okay, you had a troublesome situation come into your life. Well, 1 Corinthians 10 says that God will not allow you to be what? periosmos, troubled, beyond what you're able to bear. But will, with the, the periosmos, also make a way to what? Escape. Okay, so here's the deal. What is the purpose of troubling situations in my life? 
whether unto faith or, or revealing temptation, revealing sin in me. What's the purpose? Keep going. Produce patience, because patience what? That you may be what? Perfect. God's desire for you and I, whether you like it or not, is to be perfect. He's a perfectionist. And his goal for you is to be perfect. To be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We just completed, a couple months ago, our study of the book of Ephesians. Does anybody remember from Ephesians chapter 4? What is God's purpose for the church? Anybody remember? Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to what? To be a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God wants the same thing for the church as it is for the individual. You and I, individually, are to be conformed to the image of Christ. You and I, together, God is desiring to be conformed to the image of Christ. That when the world looks at us, they see Jesus. They don't see Bob. They don't see Steve. They don't see David. They don't see individuals. But I challenge you that in most churches today, and I've been a part of it, our ugly self-centeredness rears its head. And what people see, outsiders, is not Jesus. But they see a bunch of selfish babies wanting their own way. But God wants us to be perfect. So when trials, when tribulations, troublesome situations come upon us, and we've had them, we've had them, and we will have them. You hate to even talk about it, right? It's like the, the, the evil eye. Don't say it, because it's going to happen. Count it all joy. When what? It happens. It's going to happen. If you're alive, you can expect it. Okay, why does God allow it? Why does God allow it? To perfect us, to perfect us. In the end, regardless of what it produced patience and all other kind of stuff, it's to perfect me, to perfect us. That's why He's allowing it in our in us. Again, so the church, they had a need. It's a need. The word krea in the Greek refers to a need. In the New, New King James, it talks about this business. Later it says, and we may appoint to this business. It literally is this need. And so if you go through and you look at the other places where it's being used, it's talking about something that is ne- of a necessity. Okay? So this isn't a want. This isn't a greed. This is something they consider to be a need. Okay? So what was the need? What was the need that manifested itself in the assembly of the time. Well, first let's talk about the context of bringing the need. Okay? There was, again, this tremendous growth of the body. Now, is, is growth in the body negative or positive? It's positive. Let's go positive. I, I say yes, I, because you know where I'm going with this. But, but we would see it as positive. We, we certainly don't um, curse God for sending new people. Oh, man, you brought Kent and Diane last week, and they came again this week. Why, why, God, why are they doing this? You know, and, 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 and there's Kathy and John. They just came about a month and a half ago, and they're still sitting there. And Jonathan, and he said, no, rather, we're what? We're rejoicing in the Lord. This is exciting stuff. God is good. So it's not a negative. 
This is a positive. And it's a massive positive. What would you do today if all of a sudden people were all throughout that, the field, because we haven't got the parking lot anymore because we're parking past it, right? And so, you guys don't want to see the, the drawings of the new potential facility. There is no field. It's all parking lot. Okay, it just happens how it plays out, okay? Anyways, so, so we have that today. Before we even have the facility, boom, you know, you know, all these cars are there, and all of a sudden there's 150, 250, 350, and they keep coming. And you ain't got spot. It's going to be worse. Gerard, I saw Gerald sat down next to you on Friday night, and I thought, man, I don't know what that's like, three people in that, in that booth, and you know. And could you imagine? Because now all of a sudden you're, it's like you got five chairs there, you're going to get ten people on them. You get what I'm saying? Phil, uh, Fire Marshal who? Anyways, so, and, <laughs> I know, this is all on tape too. Anyway, so, anyways, but you know what I'm going, you know? I mean, you're, you're sitting there, you're going, oh, man, this is exciting. It's not going to be exciting very long, okay? Because someone's going to be start complaining about what? I ain't got no space. I want my space. Why do I have to be the one that's in the overflow room? We're already proactive. We have an overflow room because we know there's going to be times when that's going to happen, Okay? Why do I have to be the one in the overflow room? I don't want to be in the overflow room. If I got to be in the overflow room, I'd rather not even be here. You, you, so growth is positive. But yes, there is the potential that we could see growth being negative, right? So there was this great growth. But they went from adding to multiplying. This is exciting to me. Acts 4.31. We went through this a couple weeks ago. This is the place where they had the prayer meeting and the, the, the walls were shaken. And coming out of that prayer meeting, not just the apostles were proclaiming the gospel, but everybody came out proclaiming the word of God. And from that moment, the Lord wasn't adding to the church. The Lord began to multiply. When the entire body becomes involved in evangelism, not just talking about evangelism, not just praying about evangelism, not just praying for, for that one or two people to go out and do what the, 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 the do the evangelism, but they become part, vibrant part of the evangelism, the Lord begins to multiply the church. Side subject but very much applied, the concept of discipleship. Again, I love math. So, Jesus, before he left, gave the Great Commission. What did he tell his disciples to do? Did he tell them to go out and just proclaim the gospel? What was the verb, what was the command that he told them to do in Matthew 28? make disciples. They made disciples using three participles. There were three parts of the discipleship process. The first one was having been sent. You were sent. Therefore, you should what? Go. The second part is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That once they come to know Jesus as their Savior, you then what? You get them identified with Jesus. You immerse them. Okay? And then thirdly, you teach them the teachings of Jesus. Note what he didn't say. He didn't say, take him to the pastor. Take him to the church. He said, you go out and make what? Disciples. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, Father, the Holy Spirit. And you teach them. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. But what we've professionalized. We've, we've made this into a business, into a corporation. 
I am not a professional. You say, tell me. Anyways, <laughs> I resemble that remark. Anyways, I'm not. I'm in a calling. It doesn't matter to me. We've talked about I, I learned this many years ago. The Lord taught me the difference between a, call, a, a shepherd and a hireling. And he called me to be a shepherd, not a hireling. Okay? So I, it doesn't matter whether I'm going to get paid or I'm not going to get paid. This is, this is the burden of my life. Okay? That I'm going to proclaim Christ. It's just, it's going to be how it is. I don't have to teach. God's put it upon me. Okay? But God, so, but people love them to put it and say, well, but he's the pastor. That's his job. It's not my job. And it's not just my job, David's job, Steve's job, and Chuck's job. It's all y'all's job. It's my job is to equip the saints. Steve, Chuck, David, our job is to equip the saints into the work of the ministry. That's what Ephesians 4 says. Remember when we went through that? It's all y'all's job. And it's my job as being a part of all y'all. You track with that one? I don't have a pass on that either. So here's the deal. I go out and I evangelize. And I win because I don't care about discipleship. I only care about evangelism. Okay? And I go out and I win a soul every month, all year. That's pretty cool. Wouldn't that be exciting? I'd be excited about that. At the end of the year, how many of us are there? Thirteen. Because yeah, I won. I was part of it. Please let me be a part of it, Steve. Anyways. <laughs> so thirteen. So there's thirteen of us at the end of the year, right? And I continue to do this. At the end of two years, there's 25. Because I won 12 more. At the end of three years, well, at the end of seven years, okay, seven years, I got 84 plus me. There's 85 believers now. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? 84 notches on the belt. But Jesus didn't tell me to do that. Jesus told me to make what? Disciples. And he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 through Paul that we're supposed to find faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. He talks about the concept of multiplication. So here's the deal. Somebody got a calculator. Get ready for this. Okay? So, anybody got a calculator in your phone? Okay, you ready? Going to give you two math problems in just one moment. Okay? So, so, so I already gave you seven years, so do two to the seventh. Okay? Don't tell me what it is just yet. Okay? So, now, instead of winning somebody every month, I'm only going to win one person to the Lord. And all year, I am going to invest my life in them like Jesus invested his life in the disciples. He's going to spend time with them. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to train you. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to pour my life into you. So that hopefully at the end of the year, hopefully at the end of the year, and again, this is just an example, right? You become a little Bob or a little Jesus, if you would, but you get where I'm going. So at the end of this year, it's not just me evangelizing, but it's what? It's two of us evangelizing. So at the end of the year, instead of there being 13 of us, there's only two of us. That's not so good. Except for next year, there's two of us evangelizing or disciple-making. At the end of two years, how many are there? Four. At the end of three years? Eight. At the end of seven years, when there would have been 85, how many do I have now? 128. Because you pass it at the seven point. Now, are you ready for this one? Okay. I don't know if your, your phone can do this. I want you to do two to the 39th. Two to the 39th. That's me only winning one person to the Lord every, 30, every year for 39 years and, and discipling them and putting my life into them and then them doing it themselves. At the end of 39 years, in the 40th year, can you read it?
Do you get it? Do you want to know where the church went wrong? We stopped discipling. Biblically, a generation is 40 years. All it takes is one generation to disciple the entire world. There are 7 billion people on the earth right now. 8 billion is growing. 40 years, 2 to the 40th, you pass it. Way past it. I don't have an important role. Yeah, you do. One person. One person. Will you ask God to burden you with one person? that you can see come to know Christ and you can soak your life into. And you can be duplicated. From one person, seven years was 128 people. Could you imagine what happens to this church in seven years from now if every single person here got involved in that process? We'd be planting a whole lot of churches, wouldn't we? Church growth. It's exciting stuff. It's positive. I want to challenge you to be a part of it. Don't just be a, 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 you know, sitting on the, on the sidelines watching it happen. I'm just a, I'm just a, um, oh, a fan. I'm just a uh, spectator. Thank you. That's exactly what I'm going for. It's a, not a spectator sport. Get in the, on the field. Start playing the game. Secondly, the phenomenal ministry to the poor. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of time on this, right? They were selling their property. They're, they're bringing it. They're laying it at the apostles' feet, and they're ministering to the poor. Do you know that, again, what, what Social Security is? It's just the world trying to mimic what the church is supposed to be doing. Do you get it? I don't believe that we're supposed to be going out and taking care of the poor of the world, except for in an evangelistic kind of way. We're supposed to be taking care of the poor within our midst. Because you're supposed to be taking care of your family. If a man will not take care of his own family, he's worse than a what? An infidel, an unbeliever. Well, whether you like it or not, when I got saved, I became a child of God. And when you got saved, you became my brother or my sister. And we're kin. And we're going to be kin for a long time, whether you like it or not. We're relatives. Your family. That's why I joked earlier about that, 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 that divorce thing. You know, when I think like the world, I think there's an out. When I think like Christ, I realize I need to work through things. Because you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my mother, you're my father. Do you get where I'm going on that one? We're related. It's a big deal. Especially when you're not from the area. I mean, I know I got my kids now living even across the street and da-da-da-da-da and all that kind of stuff. But... When we first moved down here, I mean, and we got saved. God made us really realize how much this is our family. Jimmy, you say that all the time, and it's dead on right. I mean, you got your mom and your dad, and they're important to you. But this is family to you. And we need to understand that. And what I do for my blood brother, I want to be doing for here. It's hard. I mean, honestly, like we talked about in the, the Advent thing, there's a lot of I don't talk to my family on the phone or whatever. Because I'm spending more time with my family here. And I know that they could probably feel like I don't care. I do care. But I'm involved with my family. Are you tracking? Okay. So, good stuff. A lot of growth. Phenomenal ministry to the poor. Not negatives at all. Positives. That James 1.27. Does anybody know what it says? 
pure, pure religion and undefiled is taking care of the widows and the orphans. So specifically, ministering to the poor included, they all understood it, taking care of the widows. Okay, enter the complaints. Okay, because the complaint was from the Helen, the Hellenized widows were being left out of the daily ministration of the poor. Okay, so there must have been a daily service. The word ministration there is our word diakonia. Okay, so you're going to see the word played out diakonos and diakonia all the way through this from where we get our term what? Deacon. Okay, it literally means servant. Okay, so Brian and Mark are deacons. Literally, they are servants. A servant's a servant before he's a servant. A pastor's a shepherd, a shepherd before he's a shepherd. Do you get it? An elder's an elder before he's an elder. That's what you need to have in your mind. Okay? You don't make some, vote somebody in as an office and make them something. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Okay? But we had this daily ministration going on. Okay? But who was doing the daily ministration of this moment? The apostles. The elders. The elders were. The apostles. Okay? The apostles were the first elders. Okay? And so they were doing it all. It was a, it was a one-stop shop. You know, they did everything. They, they prayed, they studied the word, they, 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 they went and visited people, they, they fed them, and that kind of stuff. People brought the, the money to them, so they had to take accounting of the money. But now, also, that was okay when it was 120 people. But now you got 5,000 plus. Yeah. And all of a sudden, there's starting to be issues, right? But in this complaint, I want to take out two things real quick that I see and that we need to be taken note of. It reveals the existence of unrepentant prejudice. Note the complaint came from the Hellenized. Now, understand that this is not um, Greeks. These are Hellenized Jews. There are two different terms, okay? So, Helene is for the Greeks, and then the Helleniste is for the those who are Hellenized. Okay, they were Jews who were Hellenized or Greekified, if you would, okay? And so they, they used the Septuagint. They didn't use the Hebrew. They dressed like the Greeks. They didn't dress like the Hebrews. And you see this in Philippians chapter 3. I have that up there, right? Yeah. Where Paul says, when he goes through his pedigree, that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. It's touching the law. Perfect. In other words, the whole idea was, I'm a real Jew. I was a Jew's Jew. I wasn't one of these Hellenized Jews. Well, so what happens is, I don't think the apostles were missing them on purpose, right? But when trials come, when fire comes, it starts to boil to the surface what's really in you. Make sense? And so you got these people all putting together, right? Who aren't necessarily homogenous in and of themselves. Right? So they're all coming together, and all of a sudden, some of the Hellenized widows were being missed. I don't know the whole story behind it. We're not told the whole story behind it. So all we can do is accept what's here. And we assume that they were missed. Do you think the apostles missed them on purpose? I don't think so. Maybe I'm elevating the apostles and putting them on pedestals too much, okay? But, but I'm going to say that since they were the representatives of Jesus, probably not, okay? But, but I'm going to say that the others aren't lying. That there was probably some missing going on. But what happens at this moment is interpretation of facts. It's not just the facts, it's the interpretation of the facts. Do you understand? So these three widows were missed. Well, what do they all have in common? Well, they're all Hellenized. 
these guys, they're just not, they're not taking care of us anymore. And all of a sudden comes the service. And so it's not just prejudice, but it's a reverse prejudice, which is still prejudice. It doesn't matter whether you're prejudiced against somebody for their color, for their nationality, for their, for their uh, financial status, for their, um, for their intellectual status, for their social status. It doesn't really matter what it is. If you have any of that in you, get rid of it. Take it to God. Confess it. It's sin. Because you know what happens anytime something happens in the world? You instantly want to blame that individual, that grouping of people. I hear it all the time in the church. Not necessarily this church, but, but sometimes even here. When things happen in society, and, and we have all the pundits who want to talk, and they want to blame this sector of society, they want to blame that sector of society, and, they, and talk about the poor, and if they just get off their duff. and they, you know, for, Get rid of all that stuff, man. You, you have, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free. Do you get it? We are one in Christ. And if you don't get rid of prejudice when you come into the church, it's still going to be there. And when something happens in the church, your prejudice is going to come out, whether you like it or not. And God allows it, because he doesn't want it in here. He wants you to love him with all your oh, heart, soul, and mind. And he knows your heart. He knows your soul. He knows your mind. And he knows what you're harboring. He knows how you talk in your house. Nobody here knows it. Don't tell anybody. But God knows it. It exposed this um, unrepentant prejudice that was there. But it also exposed, then, the existence of undermining murmuring. When we have these prejudices, prejudices that exist, and we have these other interpretations of data that are going on, the next thing that occurs, and I've been there, a part of this, not... I've been the the butt end of it, finding out that there was all this going on and I didn't know anything about it, okay? Just shocking to me. It was previous church, not here. And so, um, but this undermining murmuring, rather than doing what Jesus declared in Matthew 18. What, what, what are you supposed to do when there's a, a, a problem in, 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 the, in the church? You're supposed to go to the person who's offended you. And if the person who offends you doesn't want to listen, what are you supposed to do? Take two or three others to beat them up. No, that's exactly right. No. You're supposed to take two or three others who know nothing about the moment, know nothing about it, so they can be witnesses. They're supposed to be witnesses. So that you can have the conversation. And if you're right, if you're right, then they can assist you in what? Exhorting the brother or sister to repent. But if you're wrong, let's assume for a moment you're wrong. I know it couldn't be true that way, but let's assume for a moment that you might be wrong in the moment. Those two or three who you have poisoned, who are pure witnesses, can do what? Tell you, sorry, Bob. <laughs> they don't have an issue. You have the issue. But let's say they had the issue and they didn't listen to you and they don't listen to two or three. What's the next step? Then you take it to the church. As a whole, and it's dealt with. But in most churches today, how is it dealt with? Undermining murmuring. You talk to others. Did you, did you see what the elders did? What, what are the elders? Is this a power play by the elders? Or, or, they haven't asked us about what, what, 
what this new, new phase of the building. Well, actually, we did, but you know. But, but you can go on with this thing, right? And you can say, well, they didn't ask my opinion what should be in it. I can't believe they're having the building like that. Who do they, who do they, they, they hired who? They didn't ask our opinions about this. And so just taking something that we're doing now, and you can see the undermining murmuring that could go on. And what happens at that moment? Division. Fracturing. Do you realize that Satan wants the church to be fractured immediately? I think he's using us. But I don't think he can do anything that God hasn't what? Allowed him. Because again, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God allows it because again, it's kind of all joy when you fall into divers or many different various trials, right? Because God is going to allow it because he's going to reveal something and cause the church to grow. And from this, the church is going to grow in a mighty way, right? So... We have then the solution. What's the solution? First of all, the elders come together, the apostles come together, and they formulate a plan. Now, we're not talking about, we're not told about how they did that, but probably they got together and they discussed the plan and they brought the plan to the church, right? And so the plan included, though, the fact that they needed to be set aside um, in their call, the call of the apostles, they needed to be set aside to minister to prayer in the ministry, same word, diakonia, of the word that the primary functions of the elders is spiritual. To pray, and then to steward ministry, the word. Now, does it include people? Of course it includes people. Because who am I supposed to be praying for? People. Who am I supposed to be ministering the word to? People. But the idea is that the primary function of those apostles, who were the early elders was supposed to be spiritual, that they were supposed to be committed to praying and studying God's word and then teaching God's word so that the church would have a proper doctrine, a proper understanding. What was going on? Well, they're spending time on the physical needs of the assembly, which were important, but it was taking them away from what was their primary function. And so they then came up with the idea of having these servants. And so they issued then this criteria of these servants, that they wanted them to choose seven men. Now understand, seven. How many apostles were there that couldn't handle the job? Twelve. So how many deacons does it take to replace? <laughs> Anyways, so, but here's the deal. They were trying to do everything, right? So they wanted to get back, but they analyzed how many men would it really take then to take care of all the poor? and take care of the widows, to do this ministry. And so as they analyzed it, they said, seven. So we want seven men, but look what it says, okay? And so my translation here is slightly different than what you read in New King James, okay? Because of the, I don't feel like it handles the participle very well, okay? But it's seven men among, among you who have been witnessed to be. So it's that witness to be is in a passive voice, okay? So not that they are witnesses, not that they, so that's the term of good report, but rather it's tied together with this next section. They're witness to be a full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That when you look at them, you can see in their lives, the Holy Spirit is just moving through them and they have great wisdom. Doesn't talk about their job. Doesn't talk about their pay scale. Do you get where I'm going with this one? Didn't talk about whether they're in politics. Are they a servant of God? Are they wholly committed to the plan and work of God? Do they exhibit 
wisdom in the decisions that they're making. That's the criteria. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, we don't have time to go there, you can see a lot of other criteria that are there as well, okay? Even to their wives, that their wives aren't um, gossips, okay? Because as they moved on, this is all pragmatic, practical. I mean, people talk about, you know, why do we have a statement of commitment and accountability? It's not in the Bible. It's not. It's pragmatic. This is pragmatic. They're making pragmatic decisions based upon what's going on. And by, Paul, by the time of Timothy, Paul's giving Timothy even further criteria that would help them choosing these individuals, okay? And so for us, with the, the statement of commitment and accountability, it's pragmatic. Why? Because it's a society that we live in. It's a sue-happy society. And so all we ask is people to sign a statement saying that they've read our Constitution, they know what we believe, and they want to be held accountable, and they want to serve the assembly. That's it. Pretty simple. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we accept you as part of the body. But it's in order to lead, in order to lead, in order to work in the nursery, in order to do those things, you have to be committed to the assembly. That's just simple. Okay? So, but that's pragmatic. I'm going to be honest. It's straight out. It's not biblical. It's pragmatic. Do you realize that deacons weren't, pra- weren't, weren't, weren't biblical until this moment? I want you to track that one. I want you to think that one through. Okay? So, so there's a place where leadership has to make decisions. Okay? And then they put it then to the assembly. So they gave them the criteria, right? But then they had the confirmation of the assembly. They presented it to the assembly, and the assembly said what? It's in there. It's in there. What happened with the assembly? When they, when, they, when they took it to the assembly, what did the assembly do? It seemed good to them, which means what? They must have presented it, and everybody in the body said, let's do it. Do you get it? So there was a confirmation process. It wasn't elder rule. It was elder-led. You track? They presented the plan. The assembly, the body said, we like the plan. And so then the body went out, and they did it. So we have the selection of the servants. First of all, they were chosen by the assembly. Okay, The assembly went out, and they followed the criteria given by the elders. Note, though, in the seven, and we'll talk about Stephen as we, as in the next couple of weeks. Well, not next week. Next week is Christmas. We're going to take a one-off for, for Christmas Day, but then we'll come back to it, and we're going to start looking at Stephen, right? But note, they also choose this guy called Nicholas, who was a proselyte. This is exciting to me. That means potentially he wasn't a Jew. More than likely, he wasn't an Israelite. He was a proselyte to Judaism. So instantly in the early church, they're already choosing a leader who, go, who defies their prejudice. They're getting it. Do you understand? They're seeing the problem that was there, right? And, and they're addressing it. And they're, they're dealing with the issues. And they're making sure that they are, and I hate to use this term because it's been abused, but they're being inclusive. Okay? So don't take me too far on that in our society today. Okay? But within the assembly, they're seeking to be not, oh man, he's got, he better have a good talith on his, on his, on his prayer shawl, you know, and he better read this version of the Bible and he better, you know, there's this concept. So, I want you to struggle with that one. I struggle, not with ecumenicalism from that perspective of wide open ecumenicalism, but I would love to see the body of Christ really be the body of Christ, even outside of our little local assembly. Make sense? I would love to see that. But our stripes divide us. And I understand the important truth. 
So, so get me on this one. In Bob's brain, there's a, a continual struggle on this one, where the divide is on this one. Because I want to see the, the, the church reveal Jesus to the world. And I want to see the world just be overwhelmed with the love of Christ. And yet, truth is important. Those who come to him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's a balance there, okay? So pray for me. Pray for Steve. Pray for uh, David. Pray for Chuck. Pray for your all self, okay? That we understand where that balance and wisdom is on that moment, okay? But anyways, so they chose Nicholas, a proselyte, okay? And then they brought him back to the apostles. And the apostles consecrated. They laid their hands on them. Do you know what ordination is? It's not making somebody that. It's only recognizing what God's already doing. Again, a servant is a servant before he's a servant. So you may call him a deacon right now, but it doesn't matter. Forget the office. And note that the deacons were only chosen for a specific need. There wasn't a diaconate. There wasn't going to be this rotating thing. But there was a need to take care of the widows, and so we needed seven guys to take care of it. So choose seven servants who are full of the Holy Spirit who we can put over this thing so that we can take care of the praying in the word. Okay? So they were consecrated by the apostles. They laid their hands upon them. They prayed for them, set them aside. And what was the result? The word of God, what? Spread. Do you note a common theme as we're coming through the book of Acts? That as the church obeyed, what happened? The word of God spread. Growth. The word of God spread. And the second thing we saw, the number of the disciples, what? Multiplied, but not just multiplied, it multiplied greatly. Can I talk to you about logarithms? No, not right now. Okay, anyways. <laughs> but that's when we start talking about multiplying greatly. It's so exciting. Anyways, go out and research the Mendelbrot set. It'll blow your brain. Anyways, so finally, a number of the priests were obedient to the faith. Do you get how important this little bitty statement is? These were the enemies. These were the ones who were totally opposite, anti. These are the Nicodemuses coming by night to Jesus. And they see something happening in the church that they can't deny. They can't go against it. What are they going to do with this thing? It's got to be true, real. I love telling people, look, I get, I get your perspective. I've been there in the past. But all I can tell you is when you, you come over there, I, I like to use the, the illustration of repelling. I'm, I am deathly afraid of heights. Okay? But I love repelling. Doesn't that seem weird? Okay? I'm paralyzed at the point of going over the edge. Paralyzed. Because when you come to that point, you're looking down, right? But I know that if I get over the edge, I'm going to what? I'm going to love it. I'm the guy that was in ROTC when I went down. For real, this is, I'm afraid of heights, right? I let myself go so I'd fall down because I was the demonstrator. The belay would pull on the rope to show everybody that he could stop me with just pulling on my rope. It was a blast! You think, how does that play out? I don't know, but you go over the edge and you're going to love it. Go over the edge. Give it fully to God. And I promise you, the ride is worth it. That's for salvation. Jesus is going to be something totally different than you thought, ever thought he was. But I want to tell you as believers, if you're worried about evangelism, 
If you're worried about laying it out there and trusting God to provide for you, I got lots of stories to tell you about how my God provided for me and for my family. Go over the edge. You'll never regret it. Never, ever will you regret giving yourself wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, not just saying a sinner's prayer, but giving yourself wholeheartedly to God without a safety net. Just lay it out there. He's got your belay. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And the ride is a blast. A number of the priests were obedient to the faith. They saw it was real. And they joined. So, in the end, how are we doing a family Bible church at meeting the needs within the assembly? How are we doing? There are needs. So the next question goes right with it. Do you seek to be aware of the needs? If you're sinners, then what needs? That probably means that you're not looking around you. You're only looking to yourself. You only care about your own needs. But the part of the body is you're coming together in order to minister to one another. And that's what Philippians 2 is all about. When he goes into the mind of Christ being you, it was all about let nothing be done with strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. And look not every man on your own things, but every man also on the things of others. You ought to be having looking around you and saying, oh, they have a need. Oh, they have a need. And so, Jimmy, I'm going to pick on you. Jimmy says, hey, you know, I'm lonely. Okay. I'm there. I get it. Guys. Jimmy, so accept this in in, in the right spirit, okay? Make yourself an appointment in your Google calendar that's going to go off. And it says, send Jimmy a text. Do you get it? I have those for my wife, too. Not send her a text. It just says, give her a kiss. No, no, anyways. (laughs) But for real, okay? Because I know it. I, I get how that goes. And so I, I have to put in my calendar, in my schedule, reminders for me to check on somebody, to check on this, to check on that. Because I'm going to forget. You may have great intentions, but if you know there's a need, do something. Be proactive. Even right now, start working on your phone. I don't really care, okay? Put something in there that says, you know what? I need to start thinking about others in this church. Do they have needs? Who can I have over for dinner? Who can I have over for game night? Well, I don't like doing that. I don't really care. I don't care. I really don't care. Look, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. Do you get it? When I'm done here, I'm spent. And I'm going to go hide. And sometimes I do. And, but as a whole, I know I can't. Because my calling is to interact with people and to teach people and to love people. Do you get it? And then have people over to my home after I've already been with people all the time? This is nuts. But that's, you know what? I tell Marcia, she didn't want to go on a walk, and I tell her, she'll ask, do you want to go on a walk? <laughs> no, I don't want to go on a walk. <laughs> but I'm go- I will go on a walk, because I know when I back- come back from the walk, I will have enjoyed it. Are you track with me? Do I want to go on a walk? <laughs> no, I want to play my video game. I want to veg out. I want to be by Bob. But I'm going to go on a walk. Because I want to be, spend time with you. That's what God wants me to do. I want to love you like Christ loves the church. And I know that when I come back from that walk, I will have been so excited that I went on the walk. Start looking around. Look for needs. Get involved in the needs. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Don't say, well, that's Bob's job. That's their job. Oh, they have that gift. No. 
Don't go there. It may make it easier for them, but God will give you gifts, and he will empower you to do what he's called you to do. You see a need, it's yours to take care of. Okay? Sorry. Keep your moon. Men, how do you measure up to the qualifications of an official deacon? Not even really spend time on Second on First Timothy 3, but just those two. Just those two. Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Do you make wise decisions? Or would people look at you and go, ah, oh, that's kind of foolish. I mean, those are just two basic ones, but then you can go on to the other ones. We need to aspire to be men of valor using Old Testament terms. In the New Testament, that's indicative of overseers, elders, and deacons. So read First Timothy 3 and look at those qualifications. That ought to be your goal. That ought to be what you're seeking to attain. Regarding the biblical governance of the church, we need to be committed in applying biblical principles to be elder-led, not elder-ruled. Just a statement, but you need to know that's where we're at on this. That's why we do what we do. We're trying to follow the biblical principles. Do we fail? Sometimes. Try not to, though. Elder-led, not elder-ruled. How are we handling internal struggles? We need to be proactive in prayer. So that's why we have the two weeks a year that we spend a week in prayer and fasting. That God will help us together as we come together, that we have the strength, we have his wisdom, that when issues come up, and they will come up, that we have his guidance, we have his wisdom, we have his fervor, we have his power to be able to handle these things in a way that is honoring to him. Okay? Is there then a need to change the way you think, and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. And I thank you, Father, that you've given it to us to grow by. Lord, help us to not just become fat on your word, to have knowledge, but Lord, rather to apply that knowledge to our lives and to our assembly, that we might more reflect you and that you might receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen.